You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Good morning, everyone. Can't help but agree with Lauren. It's great to be with everyone. It's been great to be back together uh, and worshiping together. I'm excited this morning because we get to kick off a new series that we've been planning, uh, Romans chapter number 8 and walking through Romans chapter number 8. Um, I want to say thanks for joining us. Uh, if it is your first time, my name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And even though we're doing the whole social distancing thing, if you would let us know if you are a guest, we'd love to try and help you get connected to uh, the life of Providence. Um, we got the title from uh, this sermon series, uh, The Great Eight, from a quote that a pastor named John Piper, he's a pa- he used to be the pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church. He's retired now and spends his time, I say retired, he spends his time going from uh, different ministries and different events, preaching uh, the Bible, faithful pastor, and uh, he runs a ministry called Desiring God. And, and he has this quote about Romans chapter number eight. I felt like we couldn't start it until I read this quote. It says, Romans eight is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the whole Bible. <laughs> and when I read that, Romans eight's the greatest chapter in the greatest book Uh, in the whole world. It's a massive statement. Uh, It feels like it's a little overkill, you know, right? You're like, whoa, because if you think about, I mean, if you've read your Bible, then you know, you're like, there's a lot uh, of amazing scriptures in the Bible. There's a lot of amazing chapters in the Bible. You know, uh, whole chapters like Ephesians chapter 2 come to mind. Or how about the Sermon on the Mount? You know, you get Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's powerful texts. Uh, or you get John chapter number 3. Some of you, you're already thinking through like your coffee mug scriptures. You're like, don't take this from me, John. This is the, this is the best chapter in the whole Bible. But uh, John Piper does do some work here that I want to just kind of walk us through before we pray. Um, he does give reasons why he thinks that Romans chapter number 8 is the best chapter in the best book in the entire world. He says this. He says, I have seven reasons for this, which of course is just typical of him, right? He's thought this through. Number one reason is that there's no other chapter that deals with the brokenness of the physical universe, how it got that way, and what will become of it. So he says, there's no other chapter in the whole Bible that deals with how did the world, or the world is broken, how did it get how did it get that way, and where will we be headed like Romans chapter 8 does? You think of this, and some of you are already probably thinking through Romans 8, where Paul's going to go on to say that there's a futility in all of creation, that all of creation groans with the longing to be redeemed, and that's where we're headed. Second reason, he says, there's no other chapter that expresses with more clarity or more power the infallible and unbreakable linkages of our salvation. So hopefully you're thinking through the end of Romans chapter 8, right? Those whom he's, he called, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he's, he goes through this whole entire link and chain of salvation, ultimately to glorification, right? Or number three, there's no chapter that combines, listen to this one, it's one of my favorite, the intercession of the Holy Spirit in us with the intercession of the Son for us with the service of the never-failing love of the Father over us. I loved that. There's no other chapter that links together the Trinitarian love of God in the Spirit interceding for us, the Son interceding for us, and the Father loving us and having his love sustain us. Number four, there is no other chapter in all the Bible that more explicitly or repeatedly juxtaposes the necessary horrors of suffering on one hand with the utterly assured grandeur of glory on the other hand, and that moves with such force through the suffering 
to a crescendo of the unshakable hope of the love of God. I love that line. So he says, there's no other chapter in the Bible that lays over here just how bad things can get and then lays over here the eternal weight of glory that we're waiting to experience and moves through the hardship, hell, difficulty, harm that we all experience to the unshakable hope that we have in Christ because of the love of God for us and wells up in you this expectation for what God is going to do and this gratitude for what God's already done. Romans 8 does that, doesn't it? Just this welling up of, wow, look at all that God's already done and look at what he's about to do. Number five, he says, there's no other chapter that deals more directly and tenderly with our struggle to know that we are children of God. That one hits home, doesn't it? The assurance factor, this feeling that we all have that we aren't sure. How are you? How can you know that you know? How can you be sure that you're sure that you're known by God or that you know God? This struggle that we all have, there's no other chapter that deals with it as tenderly and directly as Romans chapter 8 does. Number six, there's no other chapter with a more sustained litany of privileges, securities, assurances to hold us firmly in the keeping love of God. So Romans chapter 8 has this litany of assurances, privileges, blessings that God has wrought for us in the person and work of Jesus, and that these, these hold us firmly in the keeping love of God. And then lastly, and certainly not least, there is no other chapter with so, with so many glorious truths that are marshaled to help us obey one implied commandment, live by the Spirit, not the flesh, and so fulfill the whole law, that is love. You know in Romans chapter 8, there are zero commands. There are zero explicit commands in Romans chapter number 8. That's interesting, isn't it? Especially if you maybe are new to church or your only familiarity with the church is that there's a list of do's and don'ts. You would be surprised to know that John Piper here says the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the history of the world actually has zero explicit commands in it. He says here there's only really one implicit command, and that would be to live by the Spirit, but that's never actually expressly said. It just says that those that are born of God do live by the Spirit. It doesn't expressly say that we ought to live by the Spirit, and yet Romans chapter 8 serves to fan into flame obedience to God and love for God in a way that maybe no other chapter can. As elders at Providence, we've been really looking forward to this series. Uh, We believe the Lord's compelled us uh, to call the church to spiritual maturity in this cultural moment in time. There's no greater need, in my sensibilities, for our broken intense world today than for the church by the Spirit's power to display a compellingly clear vision of God and his grace in the face of Jesus than there is today. And I think that's impossible without a certain level of spiritual maturity because The church has to withstand the waves and winds of culture that are blowing very, very strongly right now. And as John says in his reasoning, Romans 8 has a way of marshalling these litany of promises together to help us to stand firmly and to unleash us in the encouraging, exhorting, empowering love of God that we might share it with others. So before we jump in, what I would love to do is just pray. And I want to ask the Spirit to do a miraculous work for us this morning, namely that Romans chapter 8, just the first two verses, that they will stir something in us. I, I have no pretense to think that I can do that, um, that, I, that I have the ability with any oratory skills to stir in us what I think Paul is trying to stir in the Roman church when he writes this. So I'd love to pray and ask the Spirit to do what 
none of us can do on our own. So if you'll bow your heads with me, let me pray for us. Father, I'm, I'm humbled by your word, but I'm so uplifted by it. This, uh, this chapter is so full of rich, glorious truth. We submit ourselves underneath your word this morning. We recognize, God, that we don't have, even in our best ideas, we don't have what's necessary for us to live lives of flourishing. Unless you, in your grace, by your spirit, come now and fill us and empower us and exhort us, we're going to be living in a perpetual groundhog day of spirituality that we just don't want, God. So please, we ask now, would you help us to flourish? Would you help us to grow? Would you expand our hearts to see this moment for the next 45 minutes or so as more than just a religious duty. But instead, we want to position ourselves underneath the fountain of your grace. And where maybe our hearts have been withering under the pressures and tensions of a fallen and broken world, we want to experience the water of your grace causing us to to come to life again. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel in one verse. There is, therefore, now, No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like right now. In in this moment, and, and wait a few seconds, and now this one. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, where we start here I think is important because I've tried to teach this over the course of the last seven or eight years to Providence. Every time we see the word therefore, we want to ask the question, what is it therefore? When you see that in your Bible, therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? Or another way to put that is, you have to go back. Because he's making a declaration, the writer, doesn't matter if it's Paul, doesn't matter if it's Jesus, doesn't matter who's writing in the scriptures, when they say therefore, they're making a declaration on the basis of what has already been said. Whether that's evidentiary or circumstantial, they're saying therefore, because I've said this thing, this thing ought now to be true in our hearts. So the Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is on the basis of what Paul's been saying for seven chapters. Now, here's the thing. I only have limited time and I can't go through everything he said in seven chapters. But we have to acknowledge that context is important. It's no small thing to be jumping into the middle of Romans, right? If you don't know much about the book of Romans, Paul writes the book of Romans to a Roman church that he has not yet met. And I want you to put yourself in his shoes. You know, when, you don't, when you've never met someone, picture yourself writing your theological understanding or something that's as deep as to your heart as your theological understanding and your life with Christ. And you're pinning a letter to them, trying to explain to them where you stand spiritually, and yet you've never met them, right? This would be like, picture yourself on a blind date, right? On like your, uh, I don't know, Christian mingle or something, whatever you're doing. And, and you have to write a letter first before you go out to coffee with this person, explain to them the kind of guy you are or gal you are, um, and, and the deeper parts of your beliefs. It's going to be difficult, right? 
It's going to be hard for you to do. And probably, if I had to guess, if you really care about uh, the recipients of your message, it's probably going to be pretty lengthy. Paul's letter to the book of Romans is known theologically in the New Testament as his most full and deep theological treatise in all of the New Testament. Paul's going to write a lot of letters, namely two-thirds of your whole New Testament, but Paul's letter to the Romans is his most full in regards to what he believes about the person and work of Jesus Christ and what that means for us. And so the first seven chapters of Romans is no small thing. There are, they are dense chapters, dense chapters full of theological arguments for Christ, theological arguments that lead us back all the way to the Old Testament and begin to explain what, in Paul's eyes, it means that Christ has become all in all to us as we look through the Old Testament. So I want to do my best to give us a quick rundown, quick as best as I can, of what's Paul been talking about. Now I want you to think of this, especially not just in theory, but in practical, everyday understanding. Think of yourself watching the news right now. Think of yourself going to work right now and the conversations that are swirling around places like social media uh, that that are having, uh, you're having around uh, dinner, maybe with friends or with coworkers. Paul addresses a lot of the deepest questions of life in Romans chapters one through seven. And he answers them in a way that I have found a lot of people are struggling to answer right now. So let's go through them real quickly. In Romans chapter 1 through 7, Paul first makes the case the gospel is a message of grace that is applied through faith and not of our own works. That's the first thing. That Christians are unique in that every other world religion has a way that we have to make ourselves acceptable to God, namely through works that we can find Uh, or that we can do in order for us to be accepted by God, all the way across the board. Paul, the very first thing he does is Romans, is say that he's not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, and it's from faith to faith, right? That faith is the ultimate active agent in the gospel message, namely that God's grace comes down and does what we can't do. Mark Driscoll one time said, well, even Christianity is is a religion of works, but it's just not your works, it's Christ's works, and that's what makes it different. So I guess that technically Christianity is a religion of works only if you're acknowledging that it's not anything that you can do or that I can do, but what Christ has done. That's where Paul starts in Romans. He says, I have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. It's the only thing that can save because it's the only thing that doesn't rely on you and me to do the right thing or be perfect in the sight of a perfect and holy God. But it relies upon Christ who is perfect, who was perfect, is perfect, and will forever be perfect. Secondarily, Paul makes the case that every human being, Jew and Gentile, has willfully rejected God and rebelled against him by refusing to honor him as God, and they have served and worshiped created things rather than the creator God. I challenge you, read Romans 1. It's a great exposition of the human condition. You see, Paul writing to Rome, Rome had this schism in the middle of the city where the emperor of Rome had decided that because of the tensions between Jews and Gentiles, he was going to exile the Jews out of the city because there were just such infighting between these two groups. Paul, writing to the Romans, says, really, there shouldn't be that much fighting among you because all, both of you, despite the fact that the Jews had been brought the truth of God first in the Old Testament and the Gentiles were now being grafted in by the grace of God, he says, really, you should have no fighting because all of us are equal underneath the wrath of God <laughs> because each of us have sinned and willfully walked away from God. This is where we get the, if you're a Baptist in the room, you've walked the Roman road, haven't you? Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 10. This is where we get Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's, the, it's one of the most 
succinct and powerful messages of equality in all of human history. Namely, not just that we were created in the image of God and we're equal, but that we're all rebels against God and therefore, by will and choice, we're equal. Okay, Paul goes on though. He says that every single human being, Jew and Gentile, is also born into sin. And through the inheritance of the earthly father Adam, who sinned against God and projected a curse unto all of posterity, that we're guilty simply by birth. Now this confirms, even though that might be like, man, that's unfair, but it confirms what David even said when he said, I was conceived in iniquity. He wasn't saying that his parents were a little scandalous, all right? He's saying I was conceived in iniquity because I'm human, because I'm a son of Adam, and therefore I'm conceived in iniquity. Meaning that we're not born, uh, and this is a narrative that's getting spun right now, we are not born innocent, but we're actually born into a fallen world with a fallen nature, now, here's the thing. I mean, I know that our children are sweet. They're all here with us, and that's awesome. Our children are great. But you, if all you have to do is be a parent or be around kids for long enough to know, you didn't have to teach them to be not sweet. No one had to walk them through how to do sinful stuff. Like, connivingness starts so early. Cute little girls are the best at it, right? Because they just have a way of just manipulating you. My son's even good at it. He looks at me in a certain way and he knows that he's manipulating me into doing something I did not originally intend to do for him. So Paul is saying here that no, we're not all born innocent, but we're actually born with a fallen nature and we're spiritually blind. And although once we take our first breath as children, we become physically alive, that spiritually we're deadened and what we need is to be brought alive again. Paul goes on to make the case that God has not changed in his dealings with us. You know, some people have this misnomer that at one time God dealt with us this way and now he deals with us another way. But that the Bible is this clear and succinct version of God dealing with human beings from Genesis to Revelation. He deals with us on the basis of grace. That this is the only way that you and I can exist is on the basis of God being gracious to us. And the good news is that he's gracious. He says that Abraham was not counted righteous on the basis of his works, but on the basis of his faith. Same God, always grace. Then Paul goes on to say that just as Adam inherited sin and wrath, and all of those that are born in faith inherit sin and wrath as well, that by faith in Christ, we also inherit eternal life as a free gift, free from works or any human boasting. So check this out, guys. If we hate the idea of Adam being the federal head who we inherit guilt from, then naturally you can't accept the gospel because the gospel is that exact same story in reverse. Is that Adam is our federal head whom we inherit guilt from by first birth, but when we trust in Christ, it's through Christ that we all inherit eternal life, not on the basis of anything we've done. So if you say, it's not fair for, for us to inherit sin, uh, sinful guilt from Adam, we didn't even do anything yet. Well, that's in reverse with Christ. You didn't do anything to inherit the righteousness of Christ either except for to believe. And that we have Adam and Christ who stand in juxtaposition against one another. That's the gospel. Now, the other argument that you could make is even though we inherit guilt from Adam, it doesn't take long for us to be willful contributors to the sinful pot. So all of us fall short. Paul then goes on to assert that all the sons of Adam are born enslaved to sin and, in, and dead to God, but then they're made alive together in Christ by grace through faith. They're no longer enslaved to their former passions, which owned them, but now they can live free lives of worship to God. This is good news that we're no longer enslaved to doing what we ought not to do or what we don't even desire to do. And then lastly, 
Paul is going to reject that the law could ever do what God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, many Jews had thought that if they could just be more faithful to the law, if they could just follow the rules more astutely, think Pharisees, then they would be accepted by God and then they would be led into all fullness of life. And Paul's making the case that the law is there and the law mostly and most proficiently diagnoses that you and I cannot follow it and therefore it's a great diagnostic tool, but it cannot heal the human heart. And that even the Pharisees that maybe got really good at obeying the majority of the law, they did not do it from a heart that loved God. They did it from a heart that loved themselves. And that all of us are susceptible to this at some level. But that the gospel is that Jesus does what we could not do on our own. And that he obeys the law perfectly, extends to us grace, and freely begins to change our hearts that we might be obedient from the heart. I always tell my son when he's on his way to school, son, will you be a good boy from the heart today? And the reason that I tell him that is because I don't just want him to be a good boy because ultimately him being a good boy can even be manipulative. (laughs) And that we learn that from a very young age. Virtuous does not mean worshiper. Moral does not mean worshiper because then we can just redefine our morals. But a worshiper is one who from the heart aligns themselves with God in love and then their actions follow. Paul says the law can't do that. The law can show you straight lines. It can't make crooked hearts straight. (laughs) But the gospel can and does because the gospel tells us a story about what Christ has done for us. Now, this is interesting because that's where we're going to be at for the very first two verses. But I do think that context matters. Now, I know that's drinking water from a fire hose. Why was it necessary for me to say that? Well, not only does context matter, but If you're a parent in the room, why is it that you do not give, or maybe you have done this before because I know that I have, why is it that we typically don't want to give our kids ice cream before the meal? You guys ever thought this through? You don't want to give them ice cream before the meal? I know some of the kids are like, that doesn't happen, that's not legit, that's not going to happen at lunch. Maybe it will. But typically we want to try to have that delayed gratification, right? Why do we teach our kids that? Well, one, okay, it'll ruin your dinner. That's the first one you've ever heard. You don't want to ruin your dinner. You don't want to ruin your, it'll ruin it. Now, if your kids are getting savvy and smart, they'll go, why? Why will it ruin it? Why will it not soften up my palate for what's coming, right? <laughs> or it isn't nutritional. We want the nutritional stuff first. We don't want you to get full on the non-nutritional stuff. I want to make the case that maybe there's a little bit deeper reason for that, namely that all delayed gratifications for kids, they remind our children that there are few shortcuts to the rewards in life that won't get you in some form of trouble or disappoint you in the end. You guys know what I'm talking about. This is just life, right? There are a few shortcuts to these rewards that won't in the end leave us in prison or leave us disappointed or in despair. And when we try to take those shortcuts, it leads us to the negative. And so we don't want to teach our children that, so we say, hey, no ice cream before lunch. Well, in similar fashion, there's, it is impossible. There's no way to get to the depths of Romans chapter 8 before we mine the gold of Romans 1 through 7. We got to do the theological groundwork of Romans 1 through 7 so that Romans 8 starts to make sense. You can even take that, and if you zoom out a little bit, you could say it's hard to understand the message of grace from the New Testament unless you zoom out and understand what's happening in the Old. How do we understand the sacrificial system of the, uh, or the sacrifice of Jesus Christ without understanding the sacrificial system of the Old Testament? You see what I mean? So there's this zooming out that has to happen, and there's some work. We don't arrive at spiritual maturity by skipping all of the important theological steps and seasons of life that it takes to get there. And those things go together, don't they? It's like you can learn a lot of theological truth and still not be spiritually mature, and you can live a lot of life and still not be spiritually mature. But when those two things come together, it starts to 
the Spirit starts to use those things to work in a way that causes spiritual maturity. As we learn the truth of God and then we experience the hardships of life and Christ meets us there, something starts to happen where the grooves of our hearts go, are bent away from our own sinful and rebellious desires and the grooves of our hearts start being bent toward worship by the Spirit's power. But listen, that's not just something that you arrive at. I've used this analogy before, but you know, just because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car. <laughs> and just because we're in church doesn't make us Christian. Just because we're in small group doesn't make us a spiritually mature Christian. <laughs> and you can go on and on, right? So there's something that has to be happening, namely that there's some important work to be done. Now what the Christian believes is the important work to be done, the heavy lifting is being done by the Spirit, but he does it in cooperation with the Christian. Now, that's not true of salvation. There's no work that you and I do in order to be saved, or as Edwards puts it, you didn't contribute anything to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. <laughs> but sanctification is this cooperation where God's doing all the heavy lifting and we are working alongside of him. And so I want to say, um, you can't arrive at the station of assurance without riding a train through the mountainous terrain of atonement, justification, substitution, sacrifice, blood, all of these things. And so we ought to take care not to be content with just superficial, conscience-easing sermons or studies while we ignore the hard work of mining for the spiritual gold that God has waiting for us. Biblical training and equipping is not all there is to spiritual maturity, but we certainly can't pretend to have nothing to do with it. So as we walk through Romans 8, my encouragement to us is let's also be mining the word, particularly those first seven chapters, so that we can start kind of lining them up against one another. That's, a, that's my, my hope and my assignment for us as a church. Let's be reading Romans 1 through 7. As Romans 8, we start walking through it slowly because there's so much truth and depth there. All right, back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus, check this out. It doesn't say there is therefore now no condemnation for the high achiever. It doesn't say, there is therefore now no condemnation for the spiritually righteous. There is therefore now no condemnation for the skilled worshiper. The big giver. The long-time faithful volunteer servant in the children's ministry the small group attender, the preacher, the pastor, right? I can go on and on and on here, right? Whatever it is, let's just, let's just pretend Philippians chapter three with Paul, whatever it is that we're listing in our moral achievements saying this is what makes us acceptable or no longer condemned before God, that is not the message of the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's it. Because of Jesus, we're no longer condemned. And this talk of no condemnation is coming on the heels of Paul asserting that you and I are under the righteous and just wrath of God before we're born again. There's a legal element to this, isn't there? I want you to put yourself in the courtroom for a minute. There's guilty and not guilty, and Paul is saying that all of us are standing before the judge and all of us are guilty until our advocate steps in and says, no, they are, they're with me, they're in me, and therefore the judge looks at us and says, no condemnation or not guilty. That's this legal element here. This is courtroom talk, and it totally makes sense as we look through the Old Testament, but it also will make sense to you if you just survey your own inner life. Let me explain what I mean. If you serve the Old Testament, then you get this idea of sacrifice, like God requires for our sin, this bloodletting of animals. And they have, in the Old Testament, you get the book of Judges. You guys know what I'm talking about? And so if you kind of walk through there, there's this idea of guilty and not guilty. 
holiness and sin, cleanness and uncleanness. And basically God has to declare you holy, declare you clean on the basis of some sacrifice or some other thing. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, what we find is that Christ does everything in order to declare us clean, holy, righteous before God. And and so Paul is saying, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there's a declaration of no condemnation. There's a lot of depth to that. But also, if you just survey for a second, I want you to do this thought thought experiment. Your own personal experience will speak to this idea as well. All of us have an inner critic who guilts us. All of us have uh, this inner dialogue And I want to say there's really two voices that predominantly speak. There might be a lot more. One would be Satan or the works of darkness. The other would be yourself. And if these two two voices are compellingly accurate uh, for about half the time. And, And what I mean by that is they point out half of the truth about you, and then they have a way of just driving you further and further down into the ground. It might look something like this. Satan has a way of saying, you're not that bad. Just go for it. Do what you want. You deserve this. You ever had that moment? You're on a diet, right? (laughs) You see the chocolate, you're like, I've been good. Just do it. I deserve this. And then you indulge. That happens at a moral level too, though, doesn't it? It's like we kind of see this linear line or we just picture our righteousness as a bucket of water that we're filling up. And when it gets really full, you're like, I can take a little pouring out of my righteousness by accepting this thing. Satan has a way of doing that. You deserve this. And then he has a way of turning that on you, doesn't he? So it's like you deserve this. And, and once you actually succumb to that, he'll say something like this. Then you are dirty, rotten, worthless, good-for-nothing sinner. You ever had this experience? It's like on one hand, he's like, hey, you can do this. And then the moment that you do this, then you automatically are turned and you start feeling worse. You're just ground into powder. It goes on to say, why would you pray? You're not holy. Why sing in church, you hypocrites? Someone comes up to you and says, hey, would you consider being a volunteer for like the kids' ministry? How could you teach kids? You, can, you're, you are a spiritual kid, all right? You're worse than that. Or then you have the voice of yourself, and yourself typically doesn't have that juxtaposition of, uh, or, that, or those words of uh, secondary pronouns like you, but you have the self-talk that goes, why am I this way? You know, why, why did I do that? Why aren't I better than this by now? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you might have to ask yourself this question. Why am I still dealing with this? Do I really believe? Am I really in Christ? Do I really know Jesus? Why can't I figure this thing out? Why can't I pull myself up by my bootstraps and get this? When will I finally arrive? When will I finally get it? I, or here's the worst one. It's no longer a question. It's just a statement, about, a statement of fact towards yourself. I'm always going to be this way. I'm always going to be just this. I'll never get out from underneath it. Now, Paul introduces in verse 2 an entirely new voice. So if you have Satan and you have self, he introduces in verse 2 the spirit who sets us free. That the spirit of the law has a way of confirming these things, at least half of them that are true. But that the spirit of, the, the, the spirit of God, the spirit of life, sets us free because it tells us a new narrative about ourselves. Namely, that you're loved, that you're no longer condemned. The truth about who you are in Christ. Things that we have on those mugs that I think have become trite, but they're deeply and wonderfully true, like you are fearfully and wonderfully made. These are things that the Spirit says about us. You see, the Spirit sets us free from the bondage to condemnation because we're not only justified, 
by grace as a gift, but now the Spirit is beginning to offer us an entirely new life that looks completely different than the old life. The Spirit turns the volume up to the voice of the Father and turns the volume down to these other voices because condemnation has a way of owning you. You see, condemnation has the appearance of wisdom, but it cannot change the human heart. How many of us, because we grew up in a house of condemnation, we have now turned to that with our kids? And I want to be careful because they're all here. (laughs) But you know what I mean. Because we grew up in a house of condemnation, and that's the way that our parents thought they could get behavioral change out of us, we feel the need to follow suit. That's the only way to get behavioral change is to have the voice of condemnation. And yet God does not operate that way because he is so wise that he knows condemnation cannot change the human heart. Or as Ray Ortland so famously puts it, he says, God does not change our hearts by getting up in our face, but God changes us by causing the Spirit to enter into our hearts by faith. Isn't that different? God doesn't get in your face. Because if, if, if you read some of these that I just mentioned out, don't you sometimes think God's thinking that about you? Why don't you get it together? Why aren't you different by now? I've already done everything that needs to be done. Court keeps saying I've done the heavy lifting. Why aren't you stronger? Why aren't you getting there already? And yet Paul is telling us here that that voice is not the voice of the Father, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As a side note, in a nation of blaming and shaming, who doesn't need an uncondemning and unaccusing place to stand today? A place of approval and acceptance. That's what the gospel has to offer. You see, condemnation and conviction are so, so different, and yet sometimes they are so deceptively alike. Or condemnation can parade itself as conviction. You see, in the Christian church, we believe that conviction leads us to repentance, which leads us to trust, faith, and life. And yet we, sometimes we own condemnation as though that were conviction, and that condemnation actually just spirals us further down. And the spirit of the law has a way of being cyclical. Romans chapter 7 says it like this, I don't do the things that I want to do, and the things that I do want to do, I end up not doing. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God and our Lord Jesus Christ, he's done that. Then you get Romans 8.1, for therefore now there's no condemnation. Or in other words, Paul believed it's not condemnation that causes us to break the cycle, it's grace. There's no way that condemnation could ever do what only grace can do, namely change the human heart to long to be obedient. One pastor's wife, tragically this pastor recently took his own life, but his wife said something very powerful in a conference one day. She said, the Spirit convicts us specifically The Spirit will specifically convict us, but Satan condemns you generally. Satan has a way of condemning us in a way that makes it about our whole person, whereas the Spirit of God has a way of particularly pointing out our behaviors that are not in line with the gospel and calling us back to himself. You see, Satan has a way of condemning us generally because then it's a weight that sits on you that you can't get out from underneath. Because what do you do about the fact that you're bad? Well, I'll tell you what you do. The gospel says that Christ has made us new, whole again, righteous. But that's not what, the, that's not what Satan's narrative is. It's that you're, you're entirely bad and there's nothing that you can do. You'll always be this way. The Spirit says that you've done a bad thing, but you're a son or you're a daughter. And you're welcome back into the fold. Come back to me. You see, spiritual maturity 
is developed as we begin to exercise our muscles of faith, learning to recognize the Spirit's work in our life, and then cooperating with the Spirit to repent of sin and trust Christ with our lives more fully. It's, spiritual maturity is not embracing condemnation so much that we become little to nothing. We look little to nothing like what Christ has died to make us, which is ultimately just this cyclical self-loathing, this cyclical uh, self-condemnation, embracing of the fact that we're nothing, that we'll never be anything, No, that's not what Paul says here. He instead says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, before I close here, I gotta address something that I think is obvious, and that is that the phrase in Christ Jesus, although very common, is a little confusing. Can we agree that, well, first of all, Paul just makes up a phrase. Like, in Christ Jesus, that's just totally made up. It's it's not a thing before this. Like, for instance, uh, we, we have people that are venerable and honorable in our culture, but we wouldn't say, like, for instance, that you're in George Washington. That's a nonsensical sentence, right? You're in who? In a person? What does that exactly mean? And yet, Paul, because of the depth of union that is made sense of and purchased by the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has to make up an entire phrase on what it means to be Christian in Christ Jesus. This deeply theological idea means a ton of things, but I want to do my best to explain a little bit of what it means. Like we're hidden with Christ or protection, united with Christ, we identify with Christ, we, have, we deny ourselves because we are in Christ. It's no longer us, but it's Christ. We are approved of in Christ. We are accepted in Christ. We hope in Christ. You have the text like Romans chapter 6 that talks about baptism, and it says that we have, we have been buried with him in baptism. In Christ, we're buried with Christ in baptism. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says that he tells the Colossian church that we should walk in Christ, be rooted and built up in Christ as they received faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me because I've been crucified with Christ. There's this identifying that we do with Christ whenever we are Christian that is totally unique, so much so that Paul makes us two but one in the same, united with him, in him. And there's two examples I want to use from the Old Testament that I think give us two ideas of what this might mean. For instance, uh, one Old Testament example is that Noah was told to go into the ark to rescue him, to protect him. There was all of this wrath that was going to be poured out on the whole earth, but Noah and his family were said, go into the ark. It wasn't, hey, just build the ark and like it, right? Or, or build the ark and acknowledge that it is a, a good thing, that God told us to build this thing, and it's sturdy. Like Noah couldn't stand outside the ark, point to the ark, and talk about all of its great features and, in hope, and hope that that would then save him. Noah built the ark, therefore, most likely, he knew every dimension of that thing and could quote it back to you, much like many of us can quote scripture. And yet, if Noah did not get into the ark, he too would have perished. He had to be in the ark in order to be saved. And this is the admonition from Paul that we are in Christ Jesus. We actually enter into a relationship with Christ where we are hidden in him. I heard one theologian talk about the the single door on the side of the ark is analogous to the single hole in the side of Christ with a spear that we are to enter into Christ. Here, right? On his side. The other analogy is that there is this 
mystery of marriage that's from Genesis all the way to Ephesians all the way to the end, that, that in the very beginning, God says that the two shall become one flesh, that the two shall become one. There will be this union with husband and wife where they are one, but still two. And later on, Paul would go on to say that the mystery of this is that it's supposed to uh, be a type of the gospel. In other words, for us to be in Christ Jesus is for us to, like marriage, be so intertwined in relationship with Christ that the two are one in this unique way. This is the, the, the actual most terrifying verse in all the New Testament, right? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. This word knew was the same word that was used earlier with Adam, that he knew his wife. <laughs> now, there, there is no... Uh, weirdness to this that, that Paul is after here, apart from saying that the, the intimacy that husband and wife have one together is the intimacy that we have with Christ, that when we're in Christ Jesus, we have no condemnation. There's this union that happens. And, and now, you might be asking this, and I hope that you are, uh, Court, but doesn't that scare me a little bit more? Because how do I know that I'm in? And the answer is beautifully simple that the active agent being in Christ Jesus is faith. Or you bring the empty hands of faith to Christ. The empty hands of faith are recognizing that I have nothing to offer you right now for you to accept me. And it's when we bring those em empty hands of faith that God does this miraculous work of bringing us into Christ Jesus, bringing us into the fold as we come to him and say, only you can do what needs to be done. And then we're brought in. We're brought in near to him. And when we are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You see, this idea of no condemnation reminds us that God has a way not only of saving us, but changing us. Not only of changing us, but sending us in a way that is entirely different from the world's pattern. And that is that he loves us into change. You see, the spirit of the law in Romans 7 has us in a cycle of death, but the spirit of God in Christ Jesus has no condemnation but grace. It breaks the cycle and brings us into life with God. And so this morning, just like Romans 8, I want to follow suit by saying there are no commands in the application of this morning, but instead I have a simple encouragement, which is to let us rejoice and rest together in the gospel of Jesus that, that Christ has taken us. Our new geography, our new address is in Christ Jesus. And that God has done this for us when we bring nothing to him. He's taken us and changed our location to the most safe and profoundly secure place, namely in Jesus Christ, that we could ever imagine. And my prayer for us is that we would revel in the love of God. Just how much God loves us that he would do this for us by his grace. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, my prayers for this, this message of no condemnation, may it land on the heart that needs it desperately this morning, including my own. That your eyes are ever set towards us with love, with the affection of a father, and not an earthly father, but a heavenly father, unconditional, everlasting, overwhelming love. 
And so now as we've asked when we, when we began this morning, help us to position ourselves under that fountain of your love in a way that causes our hearts to flourish in worship to you. Would you bring the forgiveness for those who need it desperately and help them to walk out in such a way that they can say like Paul, they have forgotten what lies behind, that their past is over because there is therefore now no condemnation for them because of you, Lord Jesus. And as we sing, may we sing in a great hope. May we sing in a great joy. And may we sing from great love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.